Servanthood is growing in this church by leaps and bounds in many different ways. It's growing in activity. It's growing in serving in formal capacities like serving in kids way, serving in some of our set ministries, men's ministries, women's ministries, uh, greeting, prayer, things like that. Those are becoming more and more filled with people that are saying, I would love to serve the people around me in a formal capacity. And we need you in all of those ministries. But I don't want you to think that serving and the year of servanthood is only about that stuff. It's really about lifestyle serving on a daily basis. So let me give you some examples in case uh, you're not catching on to what I'm trying to share. And it's this. How about taking the time to listen deeply to someone that's hurting. That is a servanthood posture. Why? Because you have other stuff you want to do. Why in the world are you going to stop your whole day, get into their world, and listen to them in their pain? You'd much rather just pretend like things are good. But being a servant means taking that extra time to listen. That's servanthood. Watching someone's kids so they can get out of the house. Writing a card of encouragement to someone. Helping someone with their work around their house so they're not feeling backed up behind or anxious. Or providing transportation to someone that needs to get to church or to do some errands. Do not think of serving as if you don't have a title, it's not legitimate. That's incorrect. The vast majority of serving that we do, most will never see and will certainly not be under the banner of a title. So as I talk to you about servanthood for the rest of this year, please remember it's these types of things, not just serving in the local church or serving in a charity or serving in a parachurch ministry. Those things are all good. We all need you. But I'm talking about day to day when no one's watching. Yeah. All right. Great. So we're going to begin with a couple practical pieces. We're going to start out with uh, the negative five bad reasons why we serve. So um, if there's anything that I say today that's brilliant, I ripped it off from someone else. I don't want anyone to think that I'm going to take credit for it, but I'm not going to tell you what they said. So you don't know what they said and what I said. So it still appears that I'm brilliant. (laughs) So that obscurity, all right, is trying to make me look good. All right, here we go. Five bad or five poor reasons why we tend to serve, and I'm going to be asking you the question at the end, why do you serve? So start kind of cycling this through your mind. Number one, serve to be recognized. Do you serve, do I serve to be recognized as a good guy or a good girl? Do I serve to be recognized as, wow, that person, uh, Pretty amazing. If I do something for you and I serve you, let's say um, I go over to your house and I mow your lawn, lawn because your back went out. As I finish serving you, it's most likely that you're going to say what? Thank you. And what does thank you ultimately mean? Thank you means I was in need. You came in, rescued me. I see value in that. I see value in you. And I want to share praise to you. Right? That feels good. So a lot of us serve because it feels good. We've realized this amazing secret that life seems more full when you're serving. 
to give is better than to receive. Yeah, we've all heard this. So some of us have owned that, but we didn't do it very much in a Christ-like sense, but we did it much more in a self-fulfilling sense. Number two, serving for Christian respect. Serving for Christian respect. There are two things that are going on at church at all times. Christianity and church subculture. Y'all understand those are different. Okay. One is Jesus. The other one is how we do stuff around here and our groove. How we have created a subculture where people can put themselves in little categories. Now, human beings always do that. Church is no different. But church subculture is not Christianity. Please separate those two. But if you know how to play the game and learn the subculture, you can go a long way as far as being respected. So if you go into church and you realize Jesus Christ is the greatest servant of all, he washed the disciples' feet, he set an example, he said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And you realize if you want to look like the big dog, you serve. And if you serve, everyone else in church is going to go, wow, right? Oh, you must be holy. You must be special. The whole idea that you think that you can go out and serve means that you feel comfortable in this environment and that other people have been trusted you with doing it and you can look good. Is that why you serve? Third poor reason to serve is to get on God's good side, right? Is that why you serve? To get on God's good side. Now, some of us believe that if we do something good, God owes us one, right? You kind of get one over on God. You invest in the God bank, right? You keep doing a whole bunch of stuff because if you ever need to draw on it, you need something in there, right? So that way he'll let you slide because you've been doing a whole bunch of good stuff. I mean, he's not going to get mad at you. You've been taking care of his kids. You've been taking care of his house. You've been doing a bunch of stuff. So really, he's not going to get on your case if you've been serving. It's amazing how many little ways we try to make God love us or try to earn his love. Which is absolutely absurd. Ran into uh, uh, Matt, a buddy of mine here at church, and he's a brand new dad. And so he shows me this little baby, right? He's like, check it out. My son's awesome, right? And then he starts going, I could, he said, I could go on all day and talk about how amazing my son is. Well, what's funny is his son was asleep. And it looked like a very perfect, beautiful baby. But it wasn't doing anything. And he can go on all day. It's intriguing that God looks at us the same way and he can look over at his angels and go, oh, I could go on all day. And the angels are like, they're not doing anything. (laughs) And he's like, I know, aren't they cute? (laughs) Right? We have this thing where we're going to earn it. Yeah, we're going to earn God's love as opposed to receiving God's love that he loves us regardless. And he loves us when we sleep and don't do anything. Uh, Number four, poor reason to serve. Obligation. I feel like I should. It's what good Christians do. That's a poor reason to serve. That means you're buying into the subculture once again. I feel like I should out of obligation. Everybody else is serving. Oh man, now I'm going to look lousy if I don't serve. Everyone we're talking in our small group and everyone's like, I'm going on a mission. I'm going on a mission and I got nothing. 
right? As I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, I went to Walmart, you know, and they're like, oh, well, that's, you know, I went across the world. What did you do? Okay. And then you have this obligation of, then they start on TV, right? This is the number five, the last one, serving out of guilt, right? On TV, you see everybody dying. If you don't come here, thousands of children will die because of you. And you're like, all right, I guess I have to go. I can't possibly have that on my conscience. Something bad is going to happen if I don't serve. And I don't want to live with that. That is a terrible reason to serve. Because all you're doing is serving out of being forced. Ultimately, here's my problem with serving for wrong reasons. You hurt people. You're dangerous. Because you're going to walk in with the wrong attitude. And if you walk in serving with the wrong attitude, somebody's going to get scratched. Somebody's going to get beat. Someone's going to get hurt. Yeah? How do I know that? Because I watch it go on all the time. Someone is out there and they're serving out of absolute obligation. They're bitter. They're angry. And they're doing this serving. You come up and you ask them a question. That was the final straw. They snap on you. And you're like, whoa, what is wrong with you? That doesn't help anybody. If you go, I want to help the church, so I'm going to serve out of obligation, and then I have to go clean up your emotional chaos mess, that's not helping. You're creating more work. If you don't do it with the right attitude, it's not helping. It's interesting how many times God says, I love a what kind of giver? Cheerful, right? Why does he have to keep saying that? Why doesn't he ever just say, I love a giver? Because quite frankly, he probably doesn't. If you're giving out of obligation, you're giving out of guilt, and you're giving out of these reasons, you're bitter. And quite frankly, God goes, I don't want your stuff. Keep it. Because you're making it worse. It's not about the stuff. He's constantly checking in on motive. The other reason why this is so important to me is that I have an upfront position. I have a very visible position that receives a lot of accolades and praise. That means I'm always in danger of mixed motives. That means I'm constantly under suspicion in my own mind. Why am I serving? Well, I don't know. It may be good on Wednesday, but what if I begin to slip on Thursday? Or this weekend, I'm feeling completely locked in with the Lord, but this weekend, I'm feeling low in my self-esteem and I need a boost, right? I mean, isn't that the reality of the situation? It's no different with you and no different with me. I'm just in greater danger. I slip easier. So I have to look through this stuff for me. So let me ask you this. Why do you serve? The fill in the blank in front of you is really a question that I'm going to try to get down to the heart of throughout this whole message today. And it is this. Will you continue to serve if you don't receive credit? Will you continue to serve if you don't receive credit? When we're little kids, we want credit. Mommy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. When we're older, nothing's changed. We say it to everyone around us. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. What if no one's looking? And what if someone does look and they don't appreciate? You going to stop? Why are you serving? Let me give you four reasons that I think are great reasons to serve. And I think are biblical. Now, neither one of these lists are 
exhaustive. They're obviously just samplings. But four reasons that I think are great reasons. Number one, identity. You serve because it's who you are. You serve because it's a heart thing, not a list thing. You serve because when Jesus transformed you, you became a new creation. And that new creation by nature serves the great king. That when you receive Jesus Christ, he is your savior, but he's also your Lord. And a Lord means master, which means you begin to serve his kingdom as a king. It's almost like if you join the military and someone asks you, why are you doing military things? I don't know, because I'm in the military. It's just natural. It's what you do. And it doesn't seem odd. It seems right in line with who you are. It's what you were built to do. Think about all the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given throughout this congregation. I have a hard time thinking of one spiritual gift that is not given for utilization to serve. They're all given for community. Without community, you lose the value of what your gift is. Y'all understand what I'm talking about? Let's say I have the gift of teaching and no one's there. Kind of stupid, yeah? There's no point in having the gift if I cannot instruct another. So I can only use my gift in community. I can only use my gift in serving. Gifts are given to serve. So you're loaded with potential. You're loaded with serving gifts. So you just serve because it's what you're supposed to do as your identity. All right, number two, great reason. Number two, gratitude. That's thankfulness. First Samuel twelve twenty four says, Be sure to fear the Lord and to serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. There's a great degree to where you're washed afresh with this waterfall of thankfulness because of the amazing rescue God just did in your life. Where God has taken you from your sins. He traded his perfect life for your garbage. He has put you in a state of grace. He has put his Holy Spirit within you as a guarantee to take you home with him to heaven. You are now no longer under his wrath. He has absolutely cleaned you up. You now receive verses like there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all this glory and excitement folds into your life and you just go, I am so thankful. I just want to go out and I want to share in my joy. Right? If something really, really good happens to you in the morning and the rest of the day you smile, do you understand that you're serving other people by giving a gift of smiling and brightening their day? But it came so naturally to you You didn't think of it that way. That is gratitude. All right, number three, love. Love is a reason to serve where you look out and you say, I love that person so much. I have to be involved in their life and to help them move forward. That's what love is. That is pretty much the primary reason why parents serve their children. You're not going to. To get thanks for everything you do. Yeah, parents? And no one's keeping track. No parent that I know, when you say, so how have you served your children? They roll out this long scroll, right? And they're like, I will tell you exactly how I serve my children. Right? I would call you a bad parent. 
if you did that. Okay, because we don't keep track. We serve. And I will tell you this. Love is such a powerful motivation to serve that we do extraordinary things. For example, I would venture to say it is rare that you're cool with cleaning up vomit of your neighbor. Yeah? What do you do for your kids? Without thinking twice. Why? Weird. Love. Number four, obedience. Obedience. You go, well, what's the difference between obligation and guilt and obedience? Ooh, big one. Obedience says, my Jesus, whom I love and who I serve, has asked of me that I would do this and he will empower me and move through me to meet a need. I merely need to be available to him and to do it the way he asked. That's obedience. That has nothing to do with guilt. That has nothing to do with obligation. It has to do with obedience to the one that rescued you. The obedience to the God who created you. Those are good reasons to serve. Deuteronomy 13.4 says, It is the Lord your God you must follow and Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. All right, we all good on that? Some practical stuff. What is serving? What's a bad reason to serve? What's a great reason to serve? All right, now let's lay the foundation of getting into Scripture. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, it's page 832 and the Bible's handed to you. Let me give you a little bit of background as to where we're at. There's three primary characters that are going to come up in our story today. Paul the Apostle, he's the one that's most famous. Everybody remembers him. He wrote uh, no less than 13 books in the New Testament. He's pretty much the big dog outside when Jesus gets things launched in the Jerusalem church and you have the disciples and apostles. After that, a lot of the story ends up going along with Paul. So everybody knows Paul the Apostle. Then there's another guy named Timothy. Timothy is Paul's protege. He is the one that follows and duplicates what Paul does. Every time Paul refers to him, he uses words like, My son, I am his father. They're incredibly tight-knit. Whenever Paul has a massive project to undertake that he has to hand off, Timothy is his number one guy. So Timothy tracks with him and travels with him unless they have to split. But for all practical purposes, he's a mini Paul. Okay? Then there's a third guy that enters the story, and he's the guy we're going to study today. Epaphroditus. Now most of you have no idea who he is. I would venture to say that those of you that have heard his name do not remember anything about him. All right, so a lot of you have heard his name. You go, okay, I got that. All right, what did he do? Hey, you don't remember. How do I know that? Because I'm a pastor and I had no idea. <laughs> so we take this story, AD 61. Recognize that Jesus Christ likely, depending on when he was born, either died at AD 30 or AD 34, somewhere in there. We're now 30 years out from the death of Christ. The church has launched out. Paul is on his mission. He's been saved. He's going out and bringing it into the Gentile world and beginning to expand to the outermost parts of the world. He got busted. He got hauled in for being a Christian and he was put into prison in Rome. Now, this, I shouldn't say prison in that way. He was under authority of the Roman government. 
It is not the dungeon that he's in later. This is the house arrest. It means he's not allowed to leave where he lives, but he can have visitors. He is chained. He is watched at all times and monitored. However, he has freedom to continue his ministry. Kind of a strange thing, but he's going to be held for trial. Okay. While he's there, Timothy and his crew are all coming in as a hub of activity and he's sending them out and doing things. Only Timothy pretty much stays around. Then a church from a city named Philippi. Okay. Now Philippi is in modern day Greece. I had an opportunity to go there a number of years back and got to even see the jail there where Paul was held. See, jail, uh, Paul kind of did a jail world tour. It was really nice. Instead of visiting countries, he would just visit jails in all the different countries. Okay, it was uh, it's a different way to see the world, that's for sure. But it seems like everywhere you go, Paul was in jail. I got a chance to see that. There's all the ruins there. You get to see all the marketplaces. That city had a special interest in Paul, and they wanted to support him. So they send out one of their big dogs, Epaphroditus. We don't think he's anybody. They think he's important. How do we know he's important to them? Because you would never send your leftovers to Paul the Apostle. You would never go, man, this guy doesn't get along with anybody. Quite frankly, I'd rather have him get out of here. Let's send him on a mission trip. Right? That's horrible. You wouldn't send that to Paul, because then Paul would get him, and Paul's hardcore. Paul's the guy, do y'all understand what he's like? Paul's like, I've been beaten, I've been stoned three times, beaten with rods, I've been whipped, I'm shipwrecked. I mean, Paul is the most intense evangelist ever. So he's not going to allow any wimpy leftovers to show up at his doorstep and as if he's going to work with them. He's split from Barnabas over John Mark being a wimp. So he's pretty tough. They're going to send him their best and brightest. They take out one of the pastors off their staff and they said, Epaphroditus, I want you to take a gift to the Apostle Paul and I want you to stay with him indefinitely. I need you to minister to his needs, be his personal assistant. We give to Paul one of our men. All right? That's the setup to the story. When Epaphroditus fires out to go hang out with Paul, something goes wrong. We don't know if it was on the trip. We don't know if it's right when he arrived. He gets sick. And it's not like a... <coughs> it's like you're going to die any moment now. What's intriguing is no mention is ever made that Paul healed him. Isn't that kind of weird? I mean, if you think about all the miracles that Paul did and how many people he's healed throughout his ministry, and there he has a guy dying who he cares about, who he's stressed over, and he can do nothing about it. Very similar to the thorn in the flesh that Paul had himself. There are so many limitations to what Paul could do. We always think that once you have a gifting of the Holy Spirit or a gift from God that you can just go around and do whatever you want. That doesn't fly. Clearly not in Paul's case. Let's pick up the story there. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10. By the way, it's likely Epaphroditus was named after the goddess Aphrodite. Which is intriguing because it means he's a Gentile convert. Remember in the early church, the Jews and Gentiles don't get along? Now we have them coming together and caring for one another. It's a pretty cool unity phrase. All right, Philippians 4.10. Just a setup. Paul said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you, the Philippian church, have renewed your concern for me. 
Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Meaning your heart was there, but you really haven't done anything for me. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Let's pause for two thoughts. Number one, some of you need to ignore the whole rest of my message, underline that, and chew on it. Yeah? Do you know the secret to being content? Or is discontent rotting your life? Right? The other thing is, Paul said, I'm not in need. Can we all be straight about that? I'm not in need. I don't need anything from you. I figured out that needs and wants are two different things. Needs are very few. Most of what we panic over, stress over, and pray over are not needs. Most of what we reject our faith for and say that God is a bad God and a bad father and a bad provider is because he's not giving you what you want. God never promised to give you what you want. God said, I will supply, God will supply all my needs, not wants. So please do not bust him for something he didn't say. Yeah? All right, we go back to it. Verse 14, yet... Even though I wasn't in need, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Meaning, I guess I didn't technically need it, but wow, my life was hard. Thank you for helping me. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Meaning you're the only supporting church on my mission trips at that time. Thank you very much. Not that I'm looking for a gift. I'm not drumming up support. But I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. He's saying, I'm just talking right now about how cool you guys are. And how much I appreciate you. 18. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. What gifts did they send? They sent three. Money, a courier, and a personal assistant, right? Wrapped up in one package. So he brought cash, whether that's for Paul's needs uh, or wants physically, or whether it was for his legal fees, we don't know. But they brought in money, sent a courier because travel's difficult. They didn't make the, hey, we got a whole bunch for you. Why don't you come over and get it? Paul's like, well, I'm in jail right now. Okay, so I need you to bring it to me. And then they sent him a personal assistant, a big dog from their congregation. All right. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Is that how you view your gifts? And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We did a devotion on Tuesday in our staff meeting. Our worship leader, Jake, broke down the scripture for us and did a whole Bible study for us. And he taught on the story where Jesus was in the temple and there was a poor lady, a widow, you remember? And all the rich people were coming in and throwing their bags of money into the treasury. And here comes a widow and she has two coins, which are less than a fraction of a penny. And she drops it in there. It was the smallest legal limit you could put into the treasury. And Jesus said, that's 
the last bit of money she has to live on. And she dropped it in there. Okay, so instead of going back through that again, we went through this whole study, everybody talked about it, and I left them with a challenge. I asked them this question. I'll ask you. What happened next? The, the, the story doesn't tell us. What happened next? She just gave all her money she had to live on. So she died, right? I mean, she went home. That was all her money. She gave it at the temple treasury. Didn't have any money for food. She died. Right? I would venture to say that almost no one in this congregation thinks that's what happened next. We may argue about what happened next. Specifically, what do you think happened next? You think that God did what? He provided for her, right? Why do you think that? That's weird. Almost all of us, 100% of us, think God provided for her. You don't think she died. You think God provided for her. Why? Well, because that's kind of what God's like, right? Isn't that what you think? It's funny. We can argue about whether or not the disciples ministered to their need or whether God did it mysteriously and magically like he's always done for her. But none of you think she died. Isn't it weird that you'll believe that for her and not for you? Oh, that's odd. Because God loves her more than you, right? When David wanted to build an altar, King David, he came up on this land and he found a piece. And when you're the king, you get whatever you want. He walked up and he says, I need this land. And the guy goes, you got to have it. I'll give you whatever you want. He said, no, 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 no. I'll buy it from you. Now, you're not going to buy it. You're the king of Israel. Take it. He said, I refuse to give my God something that costs me nothing. I'll buy it. Chew on those things. Here we go. Go to, with me to chapter 2, verse 19. Epaphroditus is here to deliver some gifts. Let's find out what happened with him in our final moments together. I hope in the Lord Jesus, Philippians 2.19 says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. He can't make any promises, but he's like, I've got to send you out some more support. That I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. Meaning I know Timothy's going to come back and I want to hear some good reports about you guys. I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. It's funny, all the rest of the guys in ministry with Paul are like, dude, what? What am I doing here? Come on, man. Even the guy that's writing it for Paul is like, Paul, do you really want to say that? And he's like, they know what I mean. He's like, I hope they know what you mean. I'm out here risking my life too, buddy. Right? Paul was surrounded by help. What he was trying to say is that Timothy was locked into that specific church just like Paul. And he owned it. He was completely selfless when it came to the Philippian church. And he was constantly wanting to give to them and help them. He said... But you know that Timothy has proved himself in action, the fruit of his life. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Meaning I'm in jail, but I think I'm going to get out. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. All right? Verse 25, but I can't wait on this one, he says. I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. Okay, let's pause. That's a problem. Why? Because he just returned their gift. A little receipt on Epaphroditus when he gets back. Thank you. I appreciate the guy. He's broken. 
right? So I'd just like to give them back to you. They're going to get them back and they're like, dude, what are you doing here? Because they don't have telephones. They can't call ahead. He's going to show back up and they're like, we gave you away. Why are you coming back? It's like a boomerang gift, right? We gave you to Paul. I don't, maybe we weren't clear in our instructions. Go help Paul and be with him indefinitely. Wasn't that the plan? I mean, we got all this support going. Hey, look at you and go. What are you doing back? Why are you here? Okay, immediately they're going to suspect something went wrong. Somehow he failed Paul. Somehow he failed his mission. Somehow he's ruining everything. So Paul writes specific instructions that Epaphroditus carries with him and hands them the note. And they're like, what are you doing here? And he goes, read the note. It says, he is my brother. That doesn't mean just Christian. It means a tight bond. He is my fellow worker. That means he works for the kingdom. And we all know that Paul has a hardcore work ethic. He said to his churches, if you don't work, you don't eat. He is also my fellow soldier. Meaning he fights side by side in conflict with me. Who is also your apostle, your messenger, the one you sent to me. Whom you sent to take care of my needs. That phrase in Greek means like a priest. For he longs for all of you and he is distressed because you heard he was ill. That word distress is the same phrase that is used for Jesus Christ sweating great drops of blood in Gethsemane. He's tore up. Why? Because he was a big deal in that church. And people loved him desperately. It was hard for them to see him go. And now they received word somehow, some way, that it's possible that Epaphroditus may have died. They're heartbroken. He has family. He has connections. And they're super stressed out. He's stressed out that they're going to think that. And he wants to put them at peace. He's that concerned for them. What's intriguing about all of this is that when I was first laying down characters to study, I was doing it in a group. I was working with Pastor Justin, um, Pastor Russ, in sorting out what servants I was going to talk about. And Justin rallied for this guy. He said, you got to talk about him. I was like, why? He said, he's awesome. you got to talk about him. I said, why? He goes, don't you see? He's a big dog in this church, and he gave up everything to go become a nobody in the shadow of Paul. He gave up his title. He gave up everything to hide in obscurity and just say, Paul, can I get you coffee? He said, what man would leave everything successful and go be a nobody for the cause of Christ. He said, you got to talk about him. That's why we're talking about him. Would you do that? It goes on and it says, indeed, he was ill. Paul said he almost died. Paul will tell you that three times. It's a big deal. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Pause. Do we have time for a tangent? Oh, like I'm really going to not do it. I'm looking at you like I care. No. 
Paul the Apostle just said, he spared me sorrow upon sorrow. What does that mean? He means if Epaphroditus died, I'd be tore up, right? Are we all clear on this? Pretty easy. Is this not Paul, the same one who said, for me to live is Christ, to die is? Is this not the same Paul that said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? You know these, yeah? I think Paul knows them real well. Shouldn't his theology make him cool with Epaphroditus dying? Right? Isn't that how it works? That's how you think it works, right? How do I know that? Because you write that in little cards to people who have lost. You write them Christian cliches and you tell them everything works for the good. And you tell them that they're better off. And you tell them, and I tell them, that it's cool now because they're with Jesus. And we, out of our theology, believe that our theology is somehow going to comfort them. I think Paul's pretty clear on theology. I think he wrote it. And he just said, if Epaphroditus dies, I'm crushed. I'm not okay with it. So please don't do that. I understand what you're trying to do. Find another way to do it. Do not give cliches and throw scripture at people and tell them not to grieve because it's cool now. It's not cool now. Death is hard. And no matter how great your theology is, that doesn't help someone sleep at night when they don't have their spouse next to them anymore. Half the time, we're worried because when grandma dies, she's like a mom to me. I can't get her on cell phone anymore. And no one understands me like her. No one will listen. Does your theology fix that problem? I get it. I understand that heaven's better than here. I understand that we should lock into our spirits for ourselves, that when we go there, we're finally free. But when you're trying to comfort someone else, understand they're not asking for theology necessarily. Sometimes they just want to say, I'm miserable because my best friend's gone. And I know what Jesus did. And I'm still sad. Paul the Apostle set an example and said, I don't like this death thing. I can't wait till Jesus comes and fixes it because this I'm not cool with. That had nothing to do with the lesson. Let's move on. Verse 29, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Meaning, don't be harsh with him, guys, really. Don't hassle him when he walks back in. You treat him with honor. He came back, he almost died for you. He almost died for me. He almost died for the sake of the gospel. You need to respect that guy. Don't be harsh with him. And you're like, harsh with him? Why would anyone... Be harsh with them. They're all stressed out that they thought he died. So clearly they love him. Who in the world would possibly not welcome him back well? Why would Paul even have to say this? Well, I don't know. Let's fill in the gaps. Do you think everybody liked Epaphroditus? Or do you think that when he was chosen, some other people were not? Do you ever think about that? Oh, you're back. Oh, I guess 
God should have chosen me in the first place, huh? How about when he left, he vacated a very significant leadership spot that is now filled. Hey, you're back. Awkward. My, that's my, my nameplates on the office. We, we threw yours out. No, you're back. And then everyone starts questioning why he's back. Paul said, I don't want to hear any of that. This man risked everything. Something that you have not done for me, he said. When he walks back into town, you love on him. You honor him. That's my man. No one knows who this guy is, but Paul sure knew who he was. And God never forgot what Epaphroditus did. Let me close with four attitudes we must possess as great servants. And we'll close with a video. These are things that I've talked a lot with my staff about. um, Especially the first one. Number one, the attitude of a great servant. Number one, nothing too small. Nothing too small. One of the rules on our leadership is I don't ever want to hear the phrase, that's not my job description. Everything's in your job description. If someone spills coffee, you get towels and you clean it up because that's what we do. We monitor God's house. And our staff is absolutely like that. I don't hear that phrase ever. Great servants, nothing is too small. Number two, no one is excluded. True servants never pick and choose who they serve. They serve according to need. Number three, no time inopportune. That means it's not based on convenience. You serve when you serve. Not just because it's good time to serve. Number four, no days off. If you're a servant by identity, you're always a servant. You're never off. That does not mean you actively serve in a formal ministry and burn out 24 hours a day. That's foolishness and poor stewardship. What it does mean is that your heart is humble and ready to respond to the Lord 24 hours a day. That's different. Listen, as we close, of course we all serve with mixed motives. What we're trying to do is purify some of that junk out. But I need you to have an encouragement as we leave. Every bit of service that you have done is recorded. God didn't miss it. God didn't close his eyes to it. And he's going to remind you. When he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in little. Boy, do we have some adventure to do. God has seen every bit of what you've done, and it makes his heart proud. Let's watch this closing video and head out of here. started this message, I would guess that only one person out of ten at Bridgeway even knew who Epaphroditus was. But God knew. To God, this man, hidden in obscurity, was every bit as important 
as the great Paul the Apostle known around the world. As far as servants go, there was no difference between the two. Each one fulfilled the role that God gave them to do, and God utilized both of them in concert to change the world. Did Epaphroditus do anything famous? No. Is very much written about him? No. Not here on earth. But I would venture to say that there are libraries in heaven with volumes of what God did through him. All we know is that he was faithful. All we know is that he risked his life to serve the kingdom of God and he almost died for it. Are you willing to die for something you will never really be known for? Are you willing to lay down your life in obscurity? Take this week and reflect on what you're doing because you're being noticed for it. And then what you're really doing for the sake of God alone.